Mark 13. We live in an unusual day, right? 2020 has been uh, quite the year, and it's not over yet. It's really only about halfway over. One thing throughout this year I've heard over and over and over from people as things have happened is this is a sign that the end is here. It's a sign of the end times. It's a sign that time that Christ is coming back. And, and the end times really is a preoccupation that we all love. Um, when I was growing up, it was really centered around the film The Thief in the Night. Uh, later, it was the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye that dominated the church. Um, you know, we love the charts, we love the signs, we love the conversation, the speculation. Uh, everyone's favorite study is end time study, right? In Sunday school or Sunday nights or Bible studies, if it said we're going to study the end time, then we get excited. We're there. We, we love that. And over and over, um, I hear believers state that, you know, this or that is a sign of the end times. Wars and persecutions, uh, coin shortages, viruses, uh, riots, they're all stated as signs of the end times. But are they really signs of the end times? Well, in our text today, the disciples asked Jesus what the sign of his coming would be. What is the sign that the end is here? And, and Jesus gave them a very clear and sure answer as to what the sign of the end times is. Now, we're going to do our best to walk through the entire chapter today and do it in a swift manner. So, let's look first at the first three verses. Mark writes, And he came out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, after sparring with the various religious leaders and the teaching the people in the temple, uh, the time had come for Jesus to return back to Bethany for the evening where he was spending his nights. And so Jesus and the disciples uh, head out, and as they leave, the disciples could not help but once again be overcome and overwhelmed with the magnificence of the temple. Now, historians tell us that it was a structure that was awe-inspiring. It was glistening. It was massive. The, the stones, massive stones uh, shone white. Uh, much of the building was overlaid with gold, and it glistened whenever the sun would hit it. It was an edifice unlike any other, and, and as they left, these Galilean men could not help but be awestruck by the temple. And one of them commented on the beauty of the temple to Jesus. Uh, no doubt this was an offhanded comment like we make when we see something amazing. This last week, uh, my family and I were in Colorado. We, we hiked there in uh, the Rocky Mountain National Park up to one of the lakes. And, and it's just an awe-inspiring thing. You see the mountains rising up. And uh, there's a video I think my wife put on Facebook of it. And, and if you listen in the background, you hear one of my children make the comment just offhanded, It is so beautiful here. And this is what they were doing, too. They walked out and said, wow, look at this temple. Isn't it amazing? But Jesus' answer was not one we would expect. 
Instead of agreeing with the disciples, Jesus instead comments that these great buildings would be completely destroyed. He says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, that will not be completely destroyed. That's not typically the answer you expect to hear when you comment about how beautiful something is. Yeah, it's going to go away. Well, that prophecy was actually fulfilled in A.D. 70 when Titus Vespian ended the siege in Jerusalem by burning down the temple, looting its contents, and then throwing the rubble of the temple into the Kidron Valley, and it has never stood again to this day. And without a doubt, this dire prophecy caught the disciples off guard. I mean, the temple was a sign of the coming kingdom. It was a sign that the Messiah was going to establish this great kingdom, and the end would come, and God would reign. And it was a sign of God's promise to the Jews. How could this happen that the temple would be destroyed? And when was this going to happen? And and if that's the case, when would Jesus then set up his kingdom? Well, they pass through the Kidron Valley, and they go up onto the Mount of Olives, and there they sit down to rest. And from that vantage point there in the Mount of of Olives, no doubt the temple again dominated the scene there on the other side of the valley. And so Jesus' inner circle, those four men, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they come to Jesus and ask a question that really we all want to know the answer to. Note verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Now, Matthew, in a parallel passage, expands on the question these men asked as as they sat on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24, 3. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. They wanted to know what would be the signs when Jesus would come into Jerusalem and set up his eternal kingdom forever. Now, They thought that Jesus was going to do this very soon. They they missed the reality that Jesus had come to die and that he would come a second time to establish this kingdom. So so Jesus answers the question they asked, what will be the sign? And he also answers the question they really didn't think was a separate question, the sign of the end of the age. But before he answered it, he gave them a warning. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Beware, watch out so that you aren't deceived. Jesus knew that the disciples were going to face tough times after his death. They would question their faith. They would suffer. They'd be tempted to be led astray. So he warned them to be on the alert. And and the truth is we need the same warning today. Either we don't think of the end at all, we don't really have eternity in mind at all, or we're fascinated by the idea of the end times, and it dominates our thinking. And so we look for signs everywhere. We, we see the depravity, and we say things like, see, the end times are coming. This is a sign of it. We see war, and we say the same thing. But, but, but are these actually signs? Well, this is a question these men asked, and Jesus answered, what's the sign of his return? And 2,000 years later, we're asking that same question. Jesus, are you really coming back? I mean, it's been a really long time. When is this going to be? What are the signs you're coming back? 
Well, in his answer, Jesus begins with things that we might think are signs, but actually aren't. They're simply things that are the result of a depraved world longing for redemption. Jesus calls them birth pangs. They're the trials of pregnancy before the actual birth. The pains of waiting to be delivered. So, so let's first look then at the birth pangs of a coming day. Through his first section of Jesus' answer, he gives us three things that we often associate with Jesus' second coming that aren't signs. They're actual just rather normal results of human depravity. And notice as we work through this text that he stayed several times, watch out for this, but it's not the end. It's not until verse 14 where he states, but when you see that he gets to the end. And all the things prior, they're not signs, they're simply birth pangs of a coming day. And Jesus gives us three categories of these birth pangs. The first category we find in verse 6 and in verses 21 through 23, and that is false religion. False religion. Verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. In verse 21, and then if anyone says to you, look, he is here, or look, here is Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus warned them that after his ascension, many false Christians would spring up. Many would come who would say that they are speaking for God when in fact they aren't. They're not speaking for God. Some would claim to be the Messiah or even God himself. We see this regularly even today. One of the fastest growing religions in the world and one of the fastest growing religions in America is, is Mormonism. This cult that follows the teachings of a man named Joseph Smith who claimed to be a prophet from God on the same level as Jesus. And as a result, his, lie, his lies have led millions astray. And in fact, their largest area of converts comes from Baptist churches or to be on the alert. Some come claiming to be preachers of God. But they teach heresy and say things God never said. So, so how do we avoid that? How do we know whether they're trustworthy or not? Well, we do this through faithfulness to the word of God. Avoiding biblical ignorance like we talked about a few weeks ago. Because of the depravity of man, many will apostate from the church. We've seen this in America as the American church has grown weaker due to its lack of fidelity to the word of God. It's concerned about getting people in the door rather than about being holy and following the word. And, but we need to note, just because the American church has grown weaker, that's not a sign of the end times. It's simply the result of depravity. The second thing we see that is a birth pang but not a sign is disaster. Verse 7 and 8. He says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pangs. So Jesus informs us that the world will be marked by war. I mean, this has been a reality for thousands of years. The Middle East really has been in one constant war since really the 1500s. Uh, or even earlier. 1,500 years of constant war through the Middle East. Our own country has faced numerous wars. The, the past century has been marked by war. World War I, World War II, Vietnam, Korea, Iraq twice, Afghanistan, even the Cold War all in the last 100 years. Over and over, we hear of war in our world. And, and this can be alarming. It, it can be scary. But Jesus instructs us not to be alarmed by this. He says, do not be alarmed. In other words, don't raise an outcry. Don't be scared. Instead, he tells us that this must take place. But it's not the end yet. These are not signs. They're simply the result of human depravity. But not only will there be disaster as a result of war, there's also going to be natural disasters. He refers to earthquakes and famines and other natural disasters. You know, do you know the National Earthquake um, Information Center? They detect between 12,000 and 14,000 earthquakes every year. Every year we receive news of several devastating earthquakes in various parts of the world. And often we wonder, hmm, does this mean that the end times are coming? Well, Jesus' answer is no. These are not signs. Don't be alarmed. This is simply the result of nature groaning as it awaits redemption. What about famine? In the early 1600s, over 7 million people died in the Deccan famine in India. This was repeated 100 years later. At the same time, 2 million people died from a famine in Russia. At the end of the 1700s, 22 million people died from famine in India. Through the 1800s, China experienced four different famines in which 45 million people died. In 1845, Ireland experienced a famine which led many to immigrate to the United States. And it's estimated that around a, a million people died from that famine in Ireland. From 1907 to 1911, east-central China saw a famine kill 25 million people. From 1917 to 1919, Persia, or modern-day Iran, saw 2 million people die from famine. From 1932 to 1933, the Soviet Union saw a famine kill 1.5 million. 1936, China saw famine kill another 5 million. 1998 to 2004, the Congo experienced famine as the result of war, saw 2.7 million die from starvation. Since 2016, Yemen has experienced famine. It's killed an estimated 85,000 children and an unknown amount of adults. Currently, South Sudan, Somalia, and Nigeria are in the grips of famine. All of these are birth pangs of a world longing for the second coming. But you see these, but as you see these things, don't be alarmed. It, it's not the end yet. The third thing that he gives us is persecution. Verse 9. But be on your guard. 
For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Perhaps the most significant event that causes us to think of signs of the end times is persecution against Christians. But this is not a surprise to God. While we have lived in unprecedented freedom, we have seen our own country turning against believers. Just a few decades ago, it was expected and culturally expected to go to church. Today, it's culturally maligned. But we don't need to fear persecution. It'll come. We don't need to be afraid of it or fear it. In the middle of this statement that we would be persecuted, there are three precious promises. First is that the gospel will be proclaimed. Verse 10 tells us, and the gospel will be, must first be proclaimed to all nations. You see, nations may rage against God, but his word will go forward. His word will not be destroyed. Now, by the way, I'll just interject this here. This is why I reject the all-millennial notion of this text. This is a view that all of the things in this passage were fulfilled in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem because the gospel had not yet been preached in all the nations by that time, and it still hasn't. The second promise is that the Holy Spirit will help us. You know, sometimes we fear persecution because we're afraid we won't be able to handle it. But if you're a true believer... The Holy Spirit will give you the strength and will give you the words to say in the middle of that trial. He will guide you. Verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. You don't have to have the strength. God will give it to you. Finally, we're promised that the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who patiently remains under it. The one who builds that endurance as a result of it. You see, eternity is coming. Redemption awaits us. If they do kill us, we'll stand before God. If they don't kill us, We get to live for God. This is why Paul said, for me to live is Christ and dying is gain. Persecution is not a sign that the end has come. It's just a sign that God is faithful and he'll fulfill his promises so we can rest in them. But now we get to the sign. Notice the change in wording in verse 14. Up to this point it says, and when, and when, and when. But then you get to verse 14 and he says... But when 
you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. But in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So here Jesus presents the sign. And what will follow that sign? So what is the sign that the second coming is, is drawing near? What is the sign the answer is the abomination of desolation. Great, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. There you go. It's the abomination of desolation. Understand, right? Let the reader understand. You say, oh, thanks for that. What are you talking about? Well, there's been a variety of ideas as to what this means. Now, all millennialists, those who don't believe in the tribulation or a millennial reign of Christ, but that all was fulfilled in AD 70, do their best to make this fit AD 70 and the destruction of the temple. But it doesn't work. But a careful examination of what's said here will tell us what Jesus is talking about. We'll be able to understand what this abomination of desolation is. So let's begin by looking at the words themselves. What does this mean? Abomination means that which is detestable. It's abominable. Desolation means to make desolate or to make into a desert or to desecrate something. So that's what it is. So obviously a simple word study is not terribly helpful. But there's two other keys in this text that are extremely helpful. First is the, word the wording of it. It says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be. That use of the word standing, it's a masculine participle, and the phrase where he ought not be indicates to us that this is referring to a person, a specific man. Further, that person referred to has to be associated with the end because in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 24, the parallel passage there, it is immediately followed by the coming of the Son of Man. So the abomination of desolation involves a specific man. Second is that very phrase, abomination of desolation. This is a phrase the Jews would have been very familiar with. In fact, in Matthew's parallel text, he helps shed light on why they're familiar. Matthew 24, 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel... Daniel, in his book, spoke about the abomination of desolation. In fact, he refers to it three times. The first time uh, that I want to refer to is found in Daniel 11, 29 to 32. It says, At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the, ship, the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortresses and shall take away the regular burnt offerings, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. 
And he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Now, Daniel 11, in its broader context, is referring to a time before Jesus came in his first coming. It is fulfilled, it was fulfilled, by Antiochus Epiphany in 168 B.C., when he invaded Israel and desecrated the temple. What he did is he set up a statue of himself in the temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar, an unclean animal on the altar, and forced the priest to eat it. So this is an abomination of desolation that he's talking about. Now, this abomination of desolation Jesus is talking about must then be in line with that fulfillment. So it gives us a picture of what we should be looking for. The other two times in Daniel where he refers to the abomination of desolation, he's not referring to the same event as Daniel 11. Instead, he's referring to an event that will take place with the man he identifies as the Antichrist. We see it in Daniel 9, 27. He, that Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And then again in Daniel 12, 11. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be a 1290 days. So what's he talking about? He's talking about this time when the Antichrist shall re will reign. He'll make a peace treaty with Israel. Halfway through it, he'll violate this peace treaty, and he will, like Antiochus Epiphany, desecrate the temple that will have been built. Paul refers to this time in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 to 10. It's what we know as the time of the tribulation. So what is this abomination of desolation Jesus is speaking of? He's speaking of that time halfway through the period of tribulation when the Antichrist, a world leader indwelt by Satan himself, will break his peace treaty with Israel, will enter the temple in Jerusalem and desecrate it in a manner similar to Antiochus Epiphany. When that happens, that's the sign. The end is near. And the event will be followed by a period of great tribulation. Verse 14, Mark 13. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop uh, flee, uh, not enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. But alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Matthew twenty four twenty one, Jesus there is quoted, for then there will be great Tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And he's referred to Revelation 7.14. I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see, this period will be marked by all-out war against God and his people. And in response, God will unleash plagues on the world that it's never seen, which will kill an approximate three-quarters of the world's population. 
And yet in the middle of this, we see a picture of God's grace. Note verse 20. It says, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Out of a love for his people, God will limit that time of this tribulation. We know from Daniel 12 that this will be three and a half years. You see, even in the darkest time the world has ever seen and will ever see, God's grace will shine through. And then comes the event, the second coming. Verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heaven will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. Jesus informs us that this second coming will be powerful. It says that, that the sun will be darkened The moon won't give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heaven will be shaken. Creation will respond to the coming of its king. All light will be extinguished. Several other books reflect this prophecy. Zechariah 14, Isaiah 13, Joel 2 all refer to this this cosmic upheaval that happens. When Christ comes the second time, all will know. His first coming was marked by humility and sacrifice. His second coming will be marked by power and sovereignty and authority. Second, this coming will be glorious. Verse 26, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. You see, the day is coming when every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, we don't need to worry about the persecution we face. God will make it all right. He will come in glory. He will reign supreme. He will stand in justice because Jesus is the King. Third, this coming will be caring says he will gather the elect from every corner of the earth. All the believers who survive that great tribulation will be collected to Jesus. And he will wipe every tear from their eye. Even in the middle of the greatest trial the world will ever see, God does not forget about his people. He comes to avenge them and to receive them. You know, in the middle of this own time we're going through, often we fear, but we need not fear God has not forgotten us. He will come. He will avenge his people. He will set up his kingdom. And and this is all well and good. And it's interesting. And we love to hear about it. But this morning is not meant to be merely academic and informational. This is supposed to impact the way we live in a very tangible way. So let's turn finally to our response. The purpose of the teaching of Jesus was not to give details about the future, but to, assure, uh, but to give assurance of Christ's return and to promote faithfulness in our present living. 
This teaching warns against both fanaticism and skepticism. Against both preoccupation with future events only or with the present only. We we need to have a balance in perspective. Why do we look to the future? Because it should impact how we live in the present. In this teaching, Jesus leaves us with three important lessons or three important ways the future ought to impact the present. First, we are to proclaim the gospel. We go back to verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Jesus is not returning until the gospel is first proclaimed to all nations. And how does this happen? With us. He calls us as believers to share the gospel. You see, you have a role in bringing in the second coming of Jesus. It's by spreading the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The end times reminds us that eternity awaits us all, and we have a responsibility to share the gospel. We should not get so caught up in talking about the present that we forget about eternity. I would wager your coworkers and your neighbors and your friends know where you stand on current events. But let me ask you a question. Do they know where you stand on the gospel? We're quick to talk about our governor, which makes it real easy. We're quick to talk about our federal leaders. They make it real easy. But we're really slow to talk about our king. My friends, these things ought not be. We ought to share the gospel. We should not get so caught up living for the present that we forget eternity. Make your life about the gospel. Second, we're to trust God. Verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What's he saying? God will accomplish what he says he will do. The world will end. Trials will come. Nations will rage against God. But he will accomplish his purposes. That ought to give us strength in the present. This is why Paul at the very end was able to tell Timothy, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth, 2 Timothy 4.17. Finally, we're to be ready. Verses 32 through 36, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. What's he saying? He's saying like the guards that stand on watch duty, 
We must always be alert to the coming of Christ. This means that we must live every day as though the end is near. We need to live every day in light of eternity. Don't get lulled to sleep by this world. You see, he gave the sign of his second coming. But you know what there's not a sign of? Our going to him. There's coming a day when he will come in the clouds and call his people to himself. What has to happen before that? Nothing. Nothing. So we need to live like it could be today. Instead of getting so preoccupied with what is going on. Instead of getting so caught up in the political mess. Instead of getting so fearful of our freedoms and our Christian liberties being shortened. Stand for God. Share the gospel. Live with grace because Jesus is coming back. This is not the end. The end is Jesus sets up his kingdom. So let's live for that. We shouldn't get preoccupied with the signs of his second coming. There will be a sign, the abomination of desolation, but we won't be here to see it. We'll already be there. So instead, focus on living today in light of the coming kingdom. Live for eternity. The three so what's today are the three things I just gave you. Share the gospel. People know where you stand politically. They know where you stand on all these things. But have you shared the gospel as much as you've shared your frustration with our current situation? Have you prayed for our leaders as much as you've complained about them? Share the gospel. Second, trust God. One of the reasons we struggle with that is we don't really trust God. It's really hard, let's be honest. We can taste, feel, touch, see life. Every day something happens that reminds us that we live here. And it's easy to lose sight of God. We need to trust him. He will accomplish his purposes. He will. He's coming back. And so be ready. Be ready. If he came back today, right this moment, could you stand before him unashamed? Or would you be ashamed of the way that you have failed in your walk with God? Would you be ashamed in the way that you have not shared the gospel, the way that you've been preoccupied with the things of this world? Be ready. We stand today with an unprecedented opportunity. The world is in shambles. It is searching for an answer. The answer is not going to happen in November. It's not a politician. It's not a law. The answer is the gospel of Christ, and you and I have it. So let's take the opportunity that we have in front of us and share the good news and demonstrate the peace that that good news gives us that it's all okay because our God reigns and he's coming back. Father, we thank you for the promise of your word. We thank you that you are indeed returning, that 
one day you will make all things right. That all these trials and tribulations are simply a birth pang, a picture of what is coming. But Lord, we do beg, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We long for that day. Help us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.